Welcome to the May 20th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. This week we examine the prognostic significance of commutations in IDH-mutated AML, explore an alternative method of warfarin monitoring, and finally, consider the role of tumor suppressor TP53 in determining response to venetoclax and related agents. First, we look at a report by Mathieu Duchemin from Hôpital Saint-Louis Assistance Publique Hôpitaux de Paris in Paris, France. Stéphane Depoton from the Institut Gustave Roussy Cancer Center in Villejuif, France and colleagues that examined the prognostic effect of commutations in IDH1 and IDH2 mutated AML. Point mutations in IDH1 and IDH2 genes occur in 7 to 14% and 8 to 19% of adult AML patients respectively. Mutated IDH enzymes acquire neomorphic enzymatic activity, producing excess amounts of the oncometabolite D2-hydroxyglutarate, which leads to histone and DNA hypermethylation and blockade of cell differentiation. Two oral agents for IDH-mutated AML, the IDH1 inhibitor ivacidinib and IDH2 inhibitor enacidinib, have been approved as monotherapy for relapsed refractory AML and or newly diagnosed AML in the elderly. Despite a shared oncogenic mechanism, the three most common IDH variants, IDH1R132, IDH2R140, and IDH2R172, have distinct patterns of co-occurring genetic alterations that affect prognosis and response to treatment. In the current paper, the investigators present a subgroup analysis of the prognostic impact of clinical and genetic covariates of IDH mutations, as well as the role of hematopoietic stem cell transplantation from three acute leukemia French association, or ALPHA, trials. The cohort comprised 319 newly diagnosed IDH-mutated AML adult patients treated with intensive chemotherapy. All patients received an induction course, including an anthracycline and cytarabine. Patients with non-favorable European leukemia net, or ELN 2010 risk, were eligible for allotransplant, if they had a sibling or a fully 10 out of 10 HLA-matched unrelated donor. Across the three studies, IDH1 and IDH2R140 were the most prevalent IDH variants, each accounting for approximately 40% of cases. More than 95% of patients had at least one commutation, primarily DNMT3A or NPM1. The IDH2R172 mutation was associated with significantly fewer commutations than the other variants. Two-thirds of patients had a normal karyotype, and 8% were high ELN 2010 risk. Looking at outcomes, the presence of an NPM1 mutation was the only variable predicting improved overall survival in IDH1 patients. In IDH2R140 mutated patients, both NPM1 mutations and normal karyotype predicted better overall survival. NPM1 mutations were associated with better disease-free survival in patients when wild-type DNMT3A was found, but the reverse was true in the presence of mutated DNMT3A. For IDH2R172 mutated disease, platelet count was the only variable retained in the multivariate model for overall survival. 
IDH2 R172 patients who had low platelet counts suffered more early deaths, as well as significantly higher rates of induction failure. Finally, the team investigated the role of allogeneic transplantation in CR1 for the 197 non-favorable ELN 2010 eligible patients. Overall, one-third underwent transplantation at a median of 5.3 months from diagnosis. Rates of transplantation were comparable among IDH subgroups, ranging from 33 to 39%. 71, or 36%, of eligible patients underwent transplantation in first complete remission. These patients experienced longer overall survival and disease-free survival compared to those who were not transplanted. In summary, these results demonstrate that the presence of an NPM1 mutation is the main prognostic factor for overall survival. In IDH1 and IDH2 R140 mutated AML, treated by intensive chemotherapy. The findings also indicate that in non-favorable ELN 2010 IDH mutated AML, allogeneic transplant improved both overall and disease-free survival. In his accompanying commentary, Arnold Ganser of Germany's Hanover Medical School points to the multiple genetic alterations that are responsible for heterogeneity in AML clinical presentation and outcome. While some of these genetic subclasses are included in the 2016 World Health Organization revised classification of AML subgroups, stratification by IDH1 and IDH2 mutations is not. To date, risk stratification of IDH-mutated AML in the presence of intensive induction chemotherapy has been difficult, with conflicting results observed among these mutations, a factor that has precluded their inclusion in ELN scoring systems. However, as Ganser notes, the present study adds considerable data about the impact of IDH subtypes and commutations and provides a baseline for future AML clinical protocols of intensive chemotherapy that incorporate IDH inhibitors or drugs of other classes, such as venetoclax, which exhibits particular activity against IDH-mutated leukemic blasts. A note for our listeners. CME for this article is available on the Blood website at www.bloodjournal.org. CME information can be found on the Table of Contents page for this issue or within the article itself. Our second report by Alma Oskarstotir, Paul Onundarsen, and colleagues at the Landspitali National University Hospital of Iceland in Reykjavik is a large-scale real-world study to validate a new approach for monitoring warfarin therapy. The variability of warfarin effect, as measured by the prothrombin time-based international normalized ratio, or PTINR, is a well-known problem. Most often blamed on food or drug interactions, this variability may instead reflect, in part, an inherent flaw in the testing method itself. Specifically, the PTINR is equally affected by reductions in clotting factors 2, 7, and 10. But experimental evidence suggests that the antithrombotic effect of warfarin is driven primarily by inhibition of factors 2 and 10, with little contribution from reduction in factor 7. While the clinical effect of factor 7 alterations is minimal, the effect on PTINR can be significant. Due to its very short half-life, levels of factor 7 routinely fluctuate thus potentially yielding divergent results in standard testing values from one assessment to the next, despite the consistency of warfarin anticoagulation. To address this dichotomy, 
the Icelandic team invented a modified PT test, called FIX-PT, that is affected by reduced factor 2 or 10, but not factor 7. In a previous small randomized study, patients monitored with a normalized ratio calculated based on the FIX-PT experienced thromboembolic events, or TE, at nearly half the rate of those managed with standard testing. Based on these encouraging results, Iceland's leading university hospital switched in 2016 from standard PT testing to the fixed PT. In conjunction with this change, the investigators documented actual practice outcomes with the revised testing approach, seeking to replicate the findings of the controlled trial in the real-world setting. Using interrupted time series methods, they retrospectively assessed incidents of TE and major bleeding during 12 months prior to and 18 months following test replacement, with months 13 to 18 predefined as transitional months. The dynamic cohort comprised 2,667 maintenance phase warfarin patients, managed at any time during the 30 months. The switch to fixed PT proved highly beneficial. A breakpoint in total TE monthly incidence became evident six months after the new test was adopted followed by a 56% reduction in TE incidence from 2.82% to 1.23% per patient year. In particular, fixed PT monitoring was associated with a significant reduction in total TE, total arterial TE, and cerebral infarction or ischemic events. The fixed PT group had non-significantly fewer intracranial or intracerebral hemorrhages. Major bleeding was not significantly reduced, and GI bleeding was similar. The authors point out several potential limitations of the study, including rare vascular events that may have escaped attention if diagnosed at other institutions, inability to adjust for patient-level factors, lack of blinding of the clinical event reviewers, and a study population that was almost entirely Caucasian. The authors contend that similarity of the current results to the prior randomized trial, as well as the segmented regression results, do not suggest a major bias. In order to reduce a potential bias if fewer high-risk patients were present during the fixed PT period, the investigators performed a subgroup analysis of patients who had been on warfarin for more than 360 days. The observed TE pattern was fully consistent with that in the entire population, although the effect size in favor of fixed PT monitoring was larger in long-term patients. The investigators also looked at patients with atrial fibrillation, the largest subgroup, with the exception of MI, the occurrence of all types of TE were reduced to a similar degree as in the overall population. Fixed PT was also associated with improvements in anticoagulation monitoring and management. The median annual number of tests per patient fell 25%, and the testing interval increased from 20 days to 27 days. Likewise, per-patient annual dose adjustments were reduced by one-third, and the dose adjustment interval increased from 64 to 95 days. In conclusion, this real-world study demonstrates that despite the blame routinely placed on food and drug interactions for variability in warfarin anticoagulation, the monitoring method itself may represent a more consequential cause. Replacement of standard PT testing with fixed PT produced significant improvements in clinical outcomes more than halving the number of thromboembolic events, while simultaneously reducing monitoring burden. In the accompanying commentary, Daniel Witt of the University of Utah College of Pharmacy in Salt Lake City 
notes the ubiquity of out-of-range INRs based on standard methods of monitoring, pointing out that many interventions have been explored to improve the stability of warfarin therapy, including specialized anticoagulation management services and use of dosing algorithms. Although these types of interventions have been associated with increased INR stability, their implementation requires significant training and coordination, and uptake has been variable. In contrast, fixed PT monitoring should be less complicated, as it can be measured manually or on any semi-automatic laboratory system. As the authors point out, the convenient but more expensive direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, have increasingly replaced vitamin K antagonists for the management of atrial fibrillation and venous thromboembolism, or VTE. In atrial fibrillation, while some controlled trials have shown that DOACs are at least as safe and effective as PT-directed warfarin therapy, superior efficacy and safety of DOACs has not consistently been shown when compared to well-managed PT warfarin control. Meta-analyses of trials involving patients with unprovoked VTE or evaluating long-term anticoagulation report lower mortality with use of vitamin K antagonists than with DOACs. In the future, it will therefore be of interest to directly compare whether well-managed fixed PT can be even more effective than DOACs in these clinical indications. Finally, we turn to a paper by Rachel Tyson from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research and Andrew Way from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and their colleagues that looks at the role of the tumor suppressor TP53 in sustaining response to BH3 mimetic inhibitors, a class that includes venetoclax. BH3 mimetic agents selectively target BCL2, MCL1, or their pro-survival relatives. TP53 operates upstream of the BCL2 protein family, which suggests that impairment of TP53 activity should not compromise the action of these drugs. A conclusion supported by similar response rates to venetoclax observed in both TP53 mutant and wild-type CLL. Recent data, however, challenge the assumption that BH3 mimetic activity is agnostic to TP53 status. Specifically, Genetic screens in AML cell lines have linked TP53 loss to relapse and early recurrence following initial response to venetoclax. The current investigation sought to further explore these associations. Using two human AML cell lines, from which TP53 had been deleted via CRISPR-Cas9, the team observed a modest impact of TP53 loss on venetoclax sensitivity in short-term assays. With prolonged exposure, the team found that TP53 deletion did not alter outcomes using higher concentrations of venetoclax, but less lethal concentrations led to marked outgrowth of TP53-deficient cells relative to wild-type. To determine the relevance of these findings in vivo, NSG mice were inoculated with an equal ratio of TP53-deficient and wild-type cells, then treated with venetoclax or vehicle for two weeks. At treatment completion, the proportion of TP53 deficient to wild-type cells was significantly higher in the venetoclax-treated cohort, confirming the potential for venetoclax to favor expansion of TP53 deficient AML populations. In considering how TP53 deficient cells outcompete wild-type in response to venetoclax, 
the team explored whether venetoclax could indirectly activate TP53 via DNA damage, or whether TP53 deficiency could render leukemic cells less sensitive to induction of apoptosis. However, their experimental findings ruled out both of these mechanisms. The authors next investigated whether TP53 loss could impair the integrity of the early stage of apoptosis, that is, backs and back activation, versus the late stage, during which caspases are activated. Through mechanistic studies, the investigators demonstrated that in the presence of deficient TP53, sublethal concentrations of venetoclax were associated with reduced activation of backs and back pointing to a role of TP53 in impairing the earliest stages of apoptosis. To determine if the observed effects were characteristic of the class of BH3 mimetics, the team chose to investigate an MCL1 inhibitor, given that clinical trials in hematologic malignancies have recently begun. Repeating the investigations performed for venetoclax, similar results were obtained. Finally, the investigators looked at drug strategies to overcome the effect of TP53 loss. In clinical practice, venetoclax is approved for use in AML in combination with hypomethylating agents or low-dose cytarabine. Therefore, the team looked at single-agent administration of cytarabine or decytabine, as well as in combination with sublethal concentrations of BH3 mimetics, either BCL2 or MCL1. In both cases, the competitive advantage of TP53-deleted cells persisted. The outcome was different with combination BH3 mimetic therapy. When administered together, even at much lower doses, TP53 populations were extinguished. This was confirmed in vivo in NGS mice, where combined targeting of BCL2 and MCL1 suppressed leukemic burden and prolonged survival in diverse models of TP53-defective AML. Overall, then, this work demonstrates first that TP53 loss impairs backs and back activation, conferring a competitive advantage to prolonged and sublethal targeting of either BCL2 or MCL1, and second, that simultaneous targeting of BCL2 and MCL1 increases the early apoptotic response in TP53 deficient cells, enhancing long-term outcomes. In her accompanying commentary, Jennifer Brown of Boston's Dana-Farber Cancer Center cites several questions raised by the work. The first is whether venetoclax levels achieved in patients are sublethal and therefore likely to select for TP53 aberrant clones. Second is whether these findings have implications beyond AML. Third, and most important, is how to overcome the selection of clones with loss of TP53. She notes how back's back activation was completely abrogated by combining venetoclax with an MCL1 inhibitor, but not by adding cytarabine or decytabine. Whether other targeted therapies in combination with venetoclax would overcome this early apoptotic defect in backs back activation remains to be determined. Brown notes that the particular excitement of the current data is how well they explain the emerging clinical observations in patients with TP53 aberrant disease. While much work remains to improve the prognosis for these patients, these authors provide a model system for testing drug combinations and further rationale for the pairing of venetoclax with MCL1 inhibitors in AML and CLL. 
for a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based. Please go to www.bloodjournal.org. And don't forget to complete the CME assessment. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.